Well, we continue in the book of Nehemiah, and we're in chapter 7. The book is going to change a little bit from chapter 6 to chapter 7. 1 through 6 was the rebuilding of the wall. And you'll see in chapter 6, verse 15, So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month, Elul, in 52 days. In 52 days, Nehemiah came back inspected the walls, cast the vision, called the people to the work, and they persevered and pressed on to the completion of the wall. And probably, maybe, if you were to ask most Christians, what is the book of Nehemiah about, they would probably say the rebuilding of the wall. And in so many respects, they would be correct. But we still have chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 to go. This book is not only about the rebuilding of the wall, but about the attempts of reformation of the people as well. In chapter 7, we will see maybe a transition from the walls to the people. And if you glance ahead, maybe down there to verse 7, 8, and following, just glance ahead. Anybody want to preach this text this morning? I promise, this is the chapter. If you were in preaching class at seminary and they said, okay, you get to pick any chapter out of Nehemiah that you want to preach, nobody is going to preach chapter 7. You know, we kind of felt that way back in chapter 3 um, when, when we read about all the people surrounding the wall as they were rebuilding. And, and kind of that was kind of easy, you know. Hey, we all play a part in the body of Christ. We all got to do our part to do the work. But chapter 7's a little bit more intimidating. Uh, so give me grace this morning. I'm going to do the best I can. I, I, I see two things here, I think, that can encourage you and me uh, in our faithfulness to Jesus. Verses 1 to 3. Now when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. The wall has been rebuilt, but Nehemiah knows that their enemies still surround them. And so with a heart to continue to protect God's people, Nehemiah looked for qualified leaders to oversee the job. And maybe if we were going to draw a principle out of it, God desires qualified leaders to oversee his people. There's a work to be done here, right? The wall is rebuilt, but the people still need to be protected. And so he put the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites were appointed. Then I put Hanani, my brother, you'll remember him from chapter 1, 
when Nehemiah was way out east in Susa, the capital of Persia, and Hanani came. And Nehemiah asked him, hey, how's it going there in Jerusalem? And Hanani is the one who gave him the report. It's not going so well. I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress. If I understand, this, this fortress is probably along the wall. It's, it's one of these places that was where troops could, could come and, 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 and be ready. And Hanani had been in charge of that, the commander of one of these fortresses, and had proven himself, apparently, because Nehemiah put Hanani, his brother, and Hananiah, who had been the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. And he makes this point about Hananiah, that he was a faithful man, and feared God more than many. We'll come back to that. I said to them, do not let the gates of, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. Usually the idea was that at dawn you would open up the gates as the day began to get going. But Nehemiah said, no, let's, let's wait a little bit longer till the sun is hot, until you know, closer to noontime. Because we want to be able to see and let there not be any sort of sneak attack. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem eat at his post, each in front of his own house. So Nehemiah wants to protect the city. He wants to protect the people of God. And so he looks for qualified leaders to do just that. So the phrase is thrown in there. He was a faithful man and feared God more than many. We'll remember back from chapter 5, that little phrase, the fear of God. The fear of God showed up two times. Uh, whenever the Jewish people were making life hard for their brothers and sisters among them, Nehemiah said, do you not fear God? The idea being that the fear of God would have led them to live differently. And then when Nehemiah was sharing his own testimony about his love for the people, he talked about not putting any excessive burden upon them because he feared God. Of course, we know Solomon says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It is to start with the idea that there is a God and I am not him. He is great. I am but his creature. And he is wise and he is good and he establishes the ways of life. And I want to trust him and know him and love him and submit my life to him because he is God. There's a fear of God that is wonderful. And here, Nehemiah put this man in charge because he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And just play off of that and remind us that God calls upon his church to look for qualified leaders to protect and provide for his people. Um, if you want, you can keep your finger there and turn all the way over to the New Testament, show you a few, a couple texts at least. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
You may be familiar with these texts, or they may be new to you. In 1 Timothy, I said chapter 1, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes to Timothy, who is an apostolic delegate, if you will. He's overseeing the church or churches in Ephesus. And Paul writes to him and says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer or elder, then, must be rich, good-looking, influential in the city, having climbed the corporate ladder of success. Of course not, right? He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. If a man wants to be an elder in the church, that's a fine work to aspire to. But he needs to have these sorts of qualities, not in perfection, but in the direction of his life, the general tenor of his life. And likewise there in verse 9, deacons. Deacons, I should have said it earlier, we, we understand them to be ministry assistants to the elders. Helping particular and important matters get taken care of in the church. And so deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified. This could be, verse 11, there's differences of opinion on it. It could be deaconesses, so women deacons likewise, must be dignified and malicious gossips, or some understand it to be the wives of the deacons. Temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. These two offices of elder and deacon are important in the life of the local church. And Paul says, don't appoint just any man into these positions. And certainly don't appoint them based upon crazy worldly qualifications. These are to be godly men, Christ-like men. Whenever we bring an elder before you or a deacon as we did this morning. Before that happens, we send them home with a list of these qualifications and little definitions by them for a place for them to rate themselves as well as talk to their spouse about it. 
So James can't just say, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, double-tongued. Bethany's also got to say, I agree with that, right? Whenever we brought Joey Pero on as an elder, and uh, he had to say, am I, am I a hospitable man, kind and welcoming to others, and even willing to open up my home to be a blessing to others? It's, it's not enough for Joey just to say that, right? We, we wanted to hear from Jenny, too. Qualified leaders. You can go a couple books over to your right. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. Same deal. Paul had spent time with Titus on the island of Crete and then left him and wrote him a letter. Titus. Chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe or who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So certainly in ministry, we want people who are confident in the work that they are being called to do, but competence is not the only qualification. There must also be biblical Christ-like character. Even in Titus chapter 2, if you want, look at chapter 2. Not just in elders who are overseeing a church body or deacons serving the church in faithful ways, but even in the one-on-one and maybe small group ministry of the church. I think of chapter 2 verse 3 here. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Paul says, love it when older women are teaching younger women. But I think it's fair to say Paul doesn't want just any older women teaching the younger women, but a a qualified woman. Not a perfect woman, but a Christ-like woman. Reverent, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women. What doesn't matter in God's economy of leadership? Apparently age doesn't matter. Just because you've lived a long time does not qualify one for leadership. Looks don't matter, aren't we glad? What was said of David? God does not look at the external. 
but at the internals. Saul or uh, Samuel had seen David's older brother, big, tall, good-looking guy, and thought, that must be the next king. And God says, oh, no. I don't look at things like you do. I'm not concerned with the outer shell. I'm concerned about the man's heart. Wealth doesn't matter. Just because a person has been successful and has accumulated a lot of wealth, that does not make them qualified for leadership. Titles don't matter. Influence in the greater culture doesn't matter. All of those things are neutral. You may well have a good-looking elder, but that's certainly not the only thing. You may well have an elder who has, by God's grace, been able to put together a lot of wealth, but that's not the issue. It may be a man who is very influential in his workplace or even around the city. It may well be, but that is not, at the end of the day, what matters in God's economy of leadership. Again, you certainly want someone who is competent for whatever the task at hand is. And apparently Hanani was and Hananiah was. These men were competent for the job, but their character was extremely important and essential as well. Think of Psalm 78, verse 72. It speaks of David as the king. He shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with the skillfulness of his hands. Kind of puts them both together. The skillfulness of his hands, competent to do the work. But he also did it according to the integrity of his heart. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary used to say of a leader, it's one who has a compass in his head. And I think we could spill that out a little bit more and say, he's got some competencies. He knows where we need to be going. He has a compass in his head, but a magnet in his heart. Not just competency, but also character. Something about his life that leads others to follow. Nehemiah builds the walls, but we need to protect them, protect the people of God. And so let's, let's put some folks in charge of this, and he chooses a faithful man who feared God more than many. But here's another this one's maybe a little bit harder to get out. Here's my best attempt on this. Anybody else want to try on what's coming up here? He's going to repopulate the city. Verse 4. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Remember, some hundred years before or longer, the Babylonians had come through and defeated the southern kingdom of Judah, and had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and essentially destroyed much of the city of Jerusalem. And 70 years later, whenever some folks came back, some 50,000 of them came back with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, and they began to 
to live again in the land, it looks like apparently they, they, they chose the villages and the towns outside the city of Jerusalem. And in some measure, that's completely legitimate because so many of them, that's probably where they came from and their families did some 70 years before. They populated those villages and those cities outside of Jerusalem, but apparently as well, maybe those who, who's, who's, forefathers had lived in Jerusalem, maybe it was even their parents, or maybe even them, they might have been 75 years old. Some of them did live in Jerusalem way back when, but when they came back, apparently the city had been so destroyed that they too had found places to live outside of the city. And so when Nehemiah comes back and rebuilds the walls, that's wonderful, but the city was large and spacious. The people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. It looks like what he did was he said, okay, we got we to repopulate the city now. And he calls together the leaders of everybody that was now living in the land the nobles, the officials, and the people, to be enrolled by genealogies. And he's going to try to figure out a good strategy for repopulating the city of Jerusalem. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah each to his city now and you, you can just look ahead and see all of these people in these numbers and in verse 39 the priests 43 the Levites 46 the temple servants the sons of and 57 the sons of Solomon's servants and the like and all the way down to verse 70 not only all these people that had come back some 50,000 of them but also the fact that they had given generously to the work. Now, here's what makes this tricky. See if you can follow with me. This list that Nehemiah includes right here in chapter 7 is not the list when he said, okay, we got to repopulate the city. Let me get the nobles. Let me get the officials and the people. All right, guys, we, we need to get a good count of how many people are now living in, in the land and which families they come from and the rest, and we need to put together a good strategy to repopulate the city. And then they, they did that, and Nehemiah records for us what they figured out. That's not the list he includes here. He gathers these guys together, and he says, all right, here's what we need to do. We need, we need to take a good census of all the people that are now living in the land and guess what guys I also found this list from about a hundred years ago of all the people who came back from the land and it's the same list from Ezra chapter 2 now remember the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah were originally one book and along the way, they got split up into two, Ezra and Nehemiah. But they're originally one book. So, whoever it is that, that, that wrote this book, some believe it's Ezra, some think even Nehemiah, 
Um, some think it was Ezra using Nehemiah's, Nehemiah himself as a source and some of the things that Nehemiah, whoever it was who, who wrote it, we've got the list in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7. Same list. Makes it a little bit confusing to try and go, why? Why, why didn't he give us the new list? Why didn't he give us the, the new numbers? He called them together to, to find out who's living where and how many of them are there and how can we figure out a good strategy to get some of them to come live in Jerusalem. But instead of doing that, he says, hey, I also found this old list and we get it again. There's a few differences that the scholars tell us are probably related to scribal errors in the copying, so we're not concerned with that. It's the same list as Ezra chapter 2. So here's my attempt. With a heart to inspire repopulation of Jerusalem, Nehemiah kindled the memory of the faithful. Or maybe another better way. God kindles faithfulness with the memory of the faithful. Maybe it was something like this. Hey guys, come here. We need to repopulate the city. And I know everybody's living outside in the villages and the towns and they found their place and I know they're enjoying it, but we can't have the city of Jerusalem empty. We need some folks who are willing to leave the place they might love, 30 miles north of here, 20 miles south of here, where they have some land and they, they're, they're settled in, and we, we're going to need some to leave and, and, and come live in Jerusalem. And hey guys, this is what I found. Here's a list. Y'all remember this list? Y'all remember that way back in 605 and 597 and 586, the Babylonians came through and crushed us. And in 586, they tore down the temple and destroyed this city and took thousands of us away into exile. We remember that, right? Yeah, yeah, I remember. I heard those stories. And then God was faithful. And 70 years later, he raised up King Cyrus of Persia and took his heart and just turned it. And King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree that anybody who wanted of the Jewish people could leave Persia, Babylon, and head back to the land of Jerusalem. Y'all remember that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And y'all remember? Only about 50,000 of them did it. And here they are. Here's 50,000 who'd been in Babylon, now Persia, since Cyrus took over. And they were comfortable there. They'd been living there, and their family had been living there now for decades. And they had jobs there, and their kids were in school there. And, you know, they were on the sports teams there. Some of them had put a pool in the backyard and really pretty flowers out in front of their house. They, they were making good money, good job, good schools, 
Life was good. But, but when the word came that you can leave and you can go, so many of them stayed, but these 50,000 left. And they took a risk and they trusted God and they came back to live in the land. And not only did they come, but they gave so generously to make this thing happen. Maybe that's why it's here. Matthew Henry commenting on Ezra 2. So he's, he's commenting on the list as it was in Ezra 2. This was done for their honor as part of their recompense for their faith and courage. What was done? This was done for their honor. What was done? It was recorded in Ezra 2. This was done for their honor as part of their recompense for their faith and courage, their confidence in God and their affection to their own land and to stir up others to follow their good example. I think maybe that's the same sort of reason why Nehemiah includes it here again in chapter 7. To stir up that, that uh, present generation that was going to need to take some risk to follow God and to do what was needed for the people of God. Nehemiah reminded them of the faithful brothers and sisters from so many years ago who had done something very, very similar. These are recorded here as examples of those who trusted God. They are models of faith. Maybe this is why Paul records so many names at the ends of some of his letters. You can keep your finger there. I'm not sure we'll come back to, to Nehemiah, but go back again to your New Testament, to the book of Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Chapter 16. It's the last chapter of the book. Paul's drawing it to a close. And he's going to mention a whole bunch of people. And a good handful of them, he's going to say something about them. Certainly not only to encourage them, but to encourage his Roman readers and you and me, who read it now some 2,000 years later, to follow in their footsteps. Why did Nehemiah record so many names? Why does Paul record so many names? I think to inspire us, to encourage us to be faithful as well. In chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Centuria. Wouldn't you love Paul to write that about you? I commend to you Mitch, who's a servant of the church. 
that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. I just remembered this. It could be that Phoebe is the one who carried this book of Romans, this letter of Romans, from Corinth, where Paul wrote it, to Rome. And so he's commending her to them. Chapter, or verse 3, Greet Prisca and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. To whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles also greet the church that is in their house. Here's that wonderful, most famous married couple of the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila. These folks risked their lives for Paul and the gospel. And, and it's not every, but almost everywhere you see them in the New Testament, they're hosting a church in their house. Greet Eponidas, my beloved, who's the first convent to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles. Probably the idea is that the apostles regard them as outstanding, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Pot Greet those folks too. Why are their names here? Why are these little descriptors of them? Certainly to be an encouragement as this letter was read in the church and they heard those encouraging words that Paul thought of them. But also for that church and the church now for two millennia to go. Boy, I'd love to be like that. Remember Hebrews 11, don't you? You can go there if you'd like. Hebrews 11, it is a list of faithful men and women whom the author includes to encourage his readers, you and me, to be just like them. And so we're not going to read it all, but Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Moses and Joseph and Gideon and Barak and so many more. God kindling faithfulness among his people by reminding them of those who were faithful before. Almost time to go, but let's just do this 
because it is appropriate. On February 22nd of 1998, a small group of folks said, we're going to plant a church. And like I said earlier, we, we just celebrated 24 years. And it was fun because it was on Tuesday. Redeemer was 22 plus 2 on 2-22-22. All right? Redeemer was 24 years old on Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. A handful of those faithful folks are still a part of Redeemer Today And I didn't tell them I was going to do this, but we do want to honor them. Gary and Marilyn Budawig are right over here. Y'all stand up, stand up, and keep standing. Hold on. Oh, yeah, 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 go ahead. Charlie and Brenda Kerr and Miss Wilma Brooks right back there. Candy Friday, Candy Friday, and her husband Gary were right there as well. And not here today, Steve and Terry Drenth as well, still a part of our church. You all, uh, you may sit down, but thank you so much for 24 years of faithfulness to Jesus. Um, you know, you could imagine, hey guys, we need to be faithful. We need to take risks for Jesus. We need to not be afraid, trust him to do something that we just can't imagine. And here's a list of folks who were here 24 years ago. Gary and Marilyn, Charlie and Brenda and Wilma and Candy and Steve and Terry. Here they are. Let's be like them, huh? Hanging in there, trusting God. Briefly, I'm sure there are men and women in your mind that you can call to mind. In addition to the good folks of Hebrews 11, in addition to the good folks of Romans 16, in addition to the good folks of Nehemiah 7, these men and women enshrined in the pages of Scripture who, who were faithful to God and trusted Him and, and, and obeyed Him, in addition to them, there are men and women that we know that are among us that maybe God would have us call to mind whenever we are encouraged to be faithful to Jesus. Oh yeah, my mama. My mama was faithful to Jesus. Not perfect, but she followed the Lord and led me to faith in Christ, I remember my mama. She ought to be on a list somewhere. Or Paul Roberts for me. I came to faith. My mama led me to faith when I was 12 years old in the living room there in Plano. And then in, I was 15 years old at a football team meeting. Coach Brazel said, guys, we're almost done. But before you leave, these couple guys want to share something with you. Paul Roberts, Kyle Ford got up and shared the four spiritual laws with our football team. He said, guys, we're going to have a Bible study this Friday. We'd love for you to be there. And I showed up. There were two of us there. I was a sophomore, and a freshman named Craig showed up. I thought, man, I thought everybody was going to be here. There's just two of us. But Paul Roberts said, Mitch, can we have Bible study at your house next week? I said, sure. How about Thursday night? I said, sounds good to me. He said, great, bring your friends. And so I did, and for the next two and a half years, Paul Roberts modeled for me and some of my friends what it meant to follow Jesus. 
I had lost contact with Paul for a long, long time. And I, I followed him on Facebook, could see that things were still going well for him and his wife Leah and their kids. But back in the early days of my cancer, uh, he, he called me and Paul and I talked again. And it was so good just to know, I think for him, not only was I still following Jesus, but for me to know that he was still following Jesus too. And a guy named Steve Hammond, when I showed up at the University of North Texas, second floor of Kerr Hall, they, I, I can't believe they did this. They put all the football players on the same floor. That is a dangerous thing to do. And indeed it was. And I think they could only find one RA who had the guts to take the second floor of Kerr Hall. And it was Steve Hammond. And he was one of the senior leaders of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he grabbed me and some other buddies and led us in Bible study and helped us and how wonderful it is to know that Steve is pastoring a church in Arlington, Texas, and has been now for the last 20-something years. And Steve Pogue, who for three years discipled me in college as well, is still faithfully serving Christ at the University of North Texas. James Skinner, who was the college pastor at Denton Bible back in those days, whenever I had graduated North Texas and I went, I actually had, I signed a contract to play football with a Shreveport Pirates of the Canadian Football League. It's when the CFL was trying to come down into the States, and they had three or five teams. Something. Anyway, they signed me to a contract. I was there for a week, and I got cut. And I called my mama, told my mom and daddy, and I called Pastor Tom Nelson at Denton Bible, and then I got on Interstate 20 to head home, and I cried just a little bit, and then I started Dallas Seminary. And a buddy said, hey, I'm, I'm going to do some work at a church, try and get it going up in Gainesville, Texas. You want to join me? And I said, sure, I'll join you. And I was young and stupid and dumb and made some just dumb mistakes. And they said, Mitch, we'd rather you not be here. And so uh, James Skinner, who was the college pastor while I was at North Texas, was now the young singles pastor and he said, Mitch, why don't you come live with Kelly and me? And he invited me to live with them. And I got to watch him and to know that James is still faithful to Jesus and pastoring a church in his hometown of uh, Ruston, Louisiana. And of course, you all know Tom Nelson's influence on me, but not just the living guys, but the dead ones too. Jim Elliott's and Charles Spurgeon's and those kind of folks. Why a list in Nehemiah 7? Why an old list in Nehemiah 7? I think, I think it was to say to those who were about to be asked to trust God and do something great for the people, it was to remind them that a generation or so before, a whole bunch of men and women had trusted God and did something great for the people of God. One more verse and we're done. Ephesians or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you today because of the great salvation that has come to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We who were created by you and for you, yet turned away from you into sin, made a mess of our lives and found ourselves under the wrath of God. But in your grace and mercy, you sent your son for us and for our salvation. His holy life, his substitutionary death, his bodily triumphant resurrection from the dead. In him, we have found forgiveness. In him, we have found new life. In him, we have found eternal life. We bless you for him. And as a follower of your son, the Lord Jesus, we want to be faithful joyfully following Christ and helping others do the same. And Lord, as we, as we do, we pray for the leadership here at Redeemer, the elders, the deacons, the staff, even our community group leaders and our Sunday school teachers and all of us, Lord, help us to be faithful men and women who fear the Lord with all of our gifts and all of our talents and all of our this, that, and the other, may we be men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And Lord, remind us of the faithful men and women who have gone before us. When we need to be encouraged, when we need to be spurred on, when we need to know that what we're being called to, others have gone before us. Remind us of their example. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.